17-year-old Siyahlongwa fled her hometown of Etequini in Durban after being abused by her uncle. She didn't know it would take her over 10 years to find the peace and stability she desperately craved. Transgender, homeless and unemployed, Shongwa thought the only life she would lead was one where she would constantly look for a place of belonging. Now 33, Shongwa is making her mark in various sectors including architecture, graphic design, media and activism. She sat down with me, Mulebohe Mugoka, to talk about how she's used both her studies and platform to advocate for all forms of equality. You're listening to the Winning Women Podcast. I was born of two very young, naive people who were in love, sort of, if you could call it that at that age, because they were still teenagers. And I was born like I was a result of that experience of theirs. And I was then obviously parented by my grandmother, who was my maternal grandmother. And she raised me as a single parent. And even though she raised me, she had her last born who was still living in her care but living in the servants' quarters in the back, you know, they call that a bachelor pad. And uh, he didn't take very well to me being raised by my grandmother. He confirmed that, listen, I don't approve. Where is this person's mother? And um, I found that, you know, from day one, I was very much feminine and that kind of made things very tense around myself and my uncle. My uncle had issues himself. I mean, from drug addictions and all kinds of crazy things, allegations, criminal um, convictions, whatnot. There were a whole bunch of things around him. And it was very scary for me because now it was starting to get physical and he was starting to get abusive around me and my grandmother and people in the neighborhood. And there were now criminal charges against him. And the the judge, because I eventually got a restraining order against my uncle because he had threatened to kill me at some point for the whole trans thing. He's like, you're embarrassment to the family. Da, 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 da. So I eventually applied for a restraining order. So in my mind, that little piece of paper was going to protect me, not knowing that when I get there to court, the judge agreed and said, listen, I will agree to this. I will sign. I'll definitely, you know, pass this this uh, restraining order that you want and protection order. But at the end of the day, I can't stop your uncle from doing whatever he wants to do to you. So if he wants to abuse you, he probably will. If he wants to kill you, he probably will. And there's nothing that the law can undo, you know, that he's already done. They can only punish him for that, possibly, but even that, you know, would be difficult to achieve. So the best solution is for you to just leave, like get get out of that house. You're young, you're talented, you've got an architectural background, move out. So at a young age, I I decided, no, let me run away to Joburg. And that's when I left Durban. When I came here, I didn't really have a plan. I did have an aunt who agreed to take me in. And my aunt lived in Santon at the time. And she lived with her two children, single mother. And in no time, she was unemployed and she was having her own financial struggles. So within a couple of months, she's like, make a plan, move out, you know? And I didn't have a way, like, where, where am I, I going to go? So 
being the youngster that I am, naive and green behind the ears, I packed a bag and I started walking around the streets. And um, that journey was very tumultuous, I must say, like very infrequent, very dodgy. In some spaces, I'd go somewhere and they'd say, come in definitely. And then they'll rummage through your stuff while you're sleeping and take whatever they want. So eventually I had no clothes. I had no money left. I had no plan. Eventually I ended up living at a train station at some point. I stayed in Joburg for quite a while and it was on and off because sometimes I would get employment and then it would last for like a couple of months and then they discovered that I'm trans and they'd call me to an HR meeting and ask me, so what's going on? Are you male? Are you female? Sometimes you come in with lip gloss and eyeshadow. Are you aware that we have formal clients here and this is a corporate space? What's going on? Like, no, at the time I didn't have the vocabulary, you know, so I no, start shaking, not sure what I was going to say. And, you know, people would just be like, oh, you know, um, we've decided to let you go within a couple of weeks. And people would never actually decisively say, we are letting you go because you are trans. And um, very quickly, I learned that, yeah, unemployment is a thing, is a thing thing for me now. I stayed in Joburg for quite a while, a couple of years. And then I got a job in Cape Town. In Cape Town, I worked for a couple of years and also got discovered and was told adios. And when that happened, my grandmother well, said, you know, listen, we know that you're unemployed. Da, da, da. And I kept complaining to her anyway where I was. I was now renting a room in Kailita somewhere and I was unemployed and I couldn't afford the rent anymore. It was getting bad. So my grandmother's like, just come back home. And I was like, but my uncle. You know, and she's like, no, come back, come back. And I thought it would be better. But when I got there, for me, I think the trigger moment was an, a cousin of mine who came to visit for Christmas. And at that time I was unemployed, you know, depending on my grandmother again and actively looking for a job. And yeah, and she she was so excited, you know, of being in Durban and hanging out with me and so on and seeing my grandmother. And then, yeah, my uncle raped her. After that, it sickened me because I realized that this is a normal thing now. Like it's not the first time that my uncle has been convicted of raping someone or being involved in some kind of dodgy activity and someone dies and I don't want to be the next person. So let me go. Finding herself in Joburg for the second time around, Shlomwa came face to face with the familiar struggle of looking for work and accommodation. What she didn't anticipate was the rape and abuse she would suffer at the hands of those who claimed they wanted to help her. Gender-based violence for me, it, it struck a nerve. Because I always hear people, especially people that have never been rape victims, speak about gender-based violence. And I think it's so nice for them to talk like that and not understand what it's like and what it does to you. Like, it's so easy when you talk, it's different. When someone spanks you or when someone squeezes your, your boob or when someone calls you something that's too intimate in a public space and you feel demeaned, that's different from, from intimate, intimate violation. Like when someone rapes you or when someone strips you naked and does something to you. It's very different. It's a, it's a, it's a, there's a layer of you that dies, you know, because you realize that your body is not yours. It's a tool for somebody else to just use as they please. And that person will get away with it. There is no attached consequence to that. And I get so annoyed. I mean, I watch these beautiful feminists talk about these things. And I'm like, it's nice. It's nice. But like, 
I, I want to hear someone who's a victim come out and actually talk about what really, really happens, what gender-based violence actually is. It's got less to do with the physical act of someone doing that to you. It's the damage that happens inside as a person. I am working on an online platform where it's just a YouTube channel and I blog there at least once a week, but it's split in, in many different segments uh, as, you know, to address different societal issues that I want to tackle, like business, like marginalized communities. In in the Sabaweli show, it was more a platform for people to, to vent their issues. And I wanted to target mostly people that, that don't have a platform, you know, people that literally have to go to an SABC and knock in the rain and see if they do get an opportunity to be heard. Sometimes they don't, sometimes they do, you know. And I felt that I wanted to be that go-to person that when people actually have a struggle, they run to me. They don't even think twice. Let's see, I might not do it. It's a yes, you know. I wanted to be that person, the voice for the marginalized community. So I'm speaking to everyone, everyone that's sort of not expected to be at the table. But because we are all humans at the end of the day in the society, we all should have a stake at the table. We all should have a voice in this public space that is media. What would your response be to transgender access to healthcare, as well as your experience with home affairs, present and past? Number one, that the people that work in those spaces are generally unaware of what it means to be transgender or gender non-binary. And so all of these things are just, you know, arbitrary luxuries that people concoct in their minds because of their level of access, or you know, like these youngsters, because most of them are very young people, very sort of presumptuous in these spaces and demanding access to this and that. And at the end of the day, they feel like it's it's an optional extra. And a lot of these these people that are in leadership positions and not just leadership positions that are working in home affairs departments don't see a need for people to have access to hormonal treatment in these clinics or in home affairs, uh, access to name change, gender market change, etc. When it comes to transgender identities, um, we have to access some kind of transitioning medications and therapies in order for you to qualify for gender market change. Gender market change means your ID book or your smart card identifies you as either male or female. In my case, obviously, it just identifies me as male. And in that maleness, it means that, for example, if I'm going to speak at a conference and in the conference, they just, I mean, in, in most conferences, especially nowadays, they will require your ID number and your details and particulars. And in those forms, they don't particularly give you the opportunity or request for you to disclose that you are transgender or whatever. So you find that you'll go into space and they'll say, Mrs. So-and-so, and in walks someone who's bald with a suit and a briefcase, you know, dressed in their masculinity and presenting very much masculine and identifying their masculinity, but the piece of paper says female. These conversations, they come into all these spaces, especially corporate spaces, um, access to jobs, even healthcare now, when you're going to get your medication for HRT or even just, you know, basic checkups. You can't negate the fact that pieces of paper mean something to people and essentially your legibility, the way in which they treat you and the way they regard you diminishes based on the, the correlation, you know, of the, these two things, your, your identity document and yourself. Right now, I've just been called to join a committee by the United Nations 
to speak about these same issues um, here in South Africa around gender-based violence, discrimination, abuse, all that jazz. So I'll be like conducting workshops and research in the month of October for the United Nations about that. I really see myself going more in the space of, I would say, creating content, creating content that is innately African, South African, LGBTQ-ness, marginalized communities, now telling stories, now telling my story, now telling other people's stories. It's a song that Shongwa has been singing a lot lately. It's a song that describes a man roaming around the earth and after many years deciding to rest. One could also argue that it's a song that perfectly describes Shongwa's life journey. Tune in next time as I chat to another woman changing her life and the lives of those around her. Hashtag Winning Women. Well